Would you turn with me to the ninth chapter of 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 9. Uh, I'm going to talk about money again. Uh, I have to, because Paul does, and we're simply following his argument through this, uh, through this book. Someone said last, why, uh, last week, how, how come you have to be so apologetic about talking about money? Uh, well, I really shouldn't be, actually, because Scripture does say quite a bit about money and our use of it. But frankly, I am. I get embarrassed every once in a while by the way we Christians approach this subject. It's uh, completely contrary to the approach that Scripture takes. And I hope you saw that last week. Paul did not beg people for money. The people that Paul was associated with begged Paul for the privilege of giving. And that seems to be the pattern throughout the New Testament. I particularly get uncomfortable when I I hear Christians asking non-Christians to give for Christian projects. Not because non-Christian money is tainted, it's not. It's because we ought to make the gospel free of charge. We have something to offer, to give. We don't want to get, we want to give. John, in one of his little epistles, says uh, he described certain itinerating prophets that had gone from house to house and from city to city ministering in Christ's name. John says, we ought to support such as these because they went everywhere accepting nothing from the unbelievers. It's not commanded in Scripture, but I just think it it makes a lot of sense for those of us that know Christ to to give to those that are are outside of the family. We don't want to take, we don't want to extract money. Nor do we want to extract, try to extract money out of one another. It's always wrong to pressure people to give. Giving ought to come out of the overflow of a relationship to God. That's the emphasis that Paul makes, and that's the emphasis I've been trying to underscore. When you get to know God and you see what a great giver he is, and that takes care of all your problems about giving. Now, uh, chapter 9 is another illustration, or at least the first few verses of chapter 9 are an illustration of, of the... Uh, chapter divisions being in the wrong place. You know my theory of how these chapter divisions came to be in the first place. They are not in part of, uh, they're not a part of the text that we consider to be inspired. My theory is that they were put in by a medieval copyist, a little monk who had hiccups, and uh, every time he hiccuped, he inadvertently uh, skipped, skipped a line, and that's how our paragraphs came to be. Some of them make just about that much sense, and this is a case in point. If you have a new international version of the Bible. You'll note that they start the paragraph back in chapter 8, verse 22, and they carry it on through chapter 9, verse 5, and that's the division that should be made. There's no break between the last verse of chapter 8 and and the first verse of chapter 9. Paul says, there's no need for me to write to you about this service to the saints, for I know your eagerness to help, and I have been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year, you and Achaia, that's the province, the Roman uh, uh, county in which Corinth was located. You and Achaia were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. But I am sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready, as I said you would be. For if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you. These are the three brothers that he mentions back in chapter 8 who had come to expedite the gift. Urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. As you know, Paul's concern was a a group of poverty-stricken Christians living in Jerusalem, and he was raising money, collections out of the churches for these, these poor saints. 
And uh, the church in Corinth, he says, a year ago it promised to give. A year went by, no gift was forthcoming. The Macedonians, who were stirred up by the desire of the Corinthians to give, began to give. And if you remember, in chapter 8, he uses the Macedonians as an illustration of what it means to give. Now, he says, originally it was the Macedonians who were stirred up by your intent to give. Now, he said, you promised, you gave your word, now you need to be true to your word. Now, I'm sending these three brothers down there to... uh, to help you make this collection and carry it on to Jerusalem. Now, he's not putting any pressure on them. If he were, he would be undermining everything he says in chapter 8. He's not saying, I'm sending three great big dudes down there, and uh, one of them you'll recognize because he doesn't have a neck. (coughs) And these guys are going to see to it that the collection is taken. No, it's none of that. No pressure. He's not pressuring them. He's just saying these these gentlemen are coming to help you take up this clip because you promised you gave your word. Now I want to move on to verse 6 because this is the heart of this section. He writes, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Remember this, he says, this is a a principle that's enshrined in Scripture and was a part of the apostolic teaching and the teaching of the prophets in the Old Testament. It's the law of sowing and reaping, what we call the law of inevitable consequence. You reap what you sow. If you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. If you sow abundantly, you'll reap abundantly. Now, some people, and I'm sure you've, you've uh, heard them say this on the radio and on TV, some people believe that uh, there is some kind of tit-for-tat relationship between giving and receiving. If you give X number of dollars, you will receive back fourfold. I've even heard people say that. You, you send uh, $50 to me, and God will give you back $200. And it's based on this passage, primarily. Uh, I have a, a friend who says that he, he, he always wants to write to these individuals when they make that promise and say, I tell you what, I've got a better deal for you. You send me $50, and that means you'll get 200 <laughs> But it just doesn't work that way. That's not what Paul is talking about here. He's not talking about quantity of giving. He's not talking about giving so that you can amass a personal fortune. He's not saying that if you give... To, to good causes that God will give you a Cadillac and a Mercedes and a, and a half-million-dollar house. No, no, he's not talking about that, that at all. His emphasis here is upon the attitude with which we give. That, that's indicated by two things. In the first place, it's indicated by the words that are used. The word that's translated sparingly here has to do with, uh, with, a, with a stingy, grasping attitude. Not, not, not willing to turn loose of things, to open up your hands, the opposite of open-handed, open-hearted uh, giving. Not stingily, he says, but literally with blessing. That's the word that's translated generously here. He's not talking about quantity of the gift. He's talking about the quality of it. Generously, open-handed. And we talked about that last week. Once you come to know God, come into relationship with him, 
And he begins to change your attitude about your possessions. And you, you're willing to open up your home and, and lend your goods and, and let people have some of your possessions and share your food and, and your clothing and your vehicles and, and the things that, that, that you've acquired. He's talking rather about an open-hearted attitude toward others, a generous spirit. And, and that holds true of everything. It has to do with our time and our talent and our energy, our efforts, the use of our spiritual gifts, our money, our, as I said, our homes, everything. Not just giving money, but it's an attitude that ought to pervade all of life. Uh, George MacDonald describes the good man or the good woman as one around whose gate and garden children are unafraid to play. I've always loved that phrase. Uh, the good man, he says, is the one around whose gate and garden children are unafraid to play. In other words, he doesn't care if the kids come over and trample in his yard and climb on his fence and swing on his gates. And, and you know, it, It's not that we, that we shouldn't take care of the things that we have. We need to be good stewards of the things that God has given to us. But he's talking about a grasping, acquisitive spirit that, that says, what's mine is mine, and I'm going to protect it with all my life. No, he says, we can't have that kind of attitude. Once you come in contact with God and you see what an open-handed, open-hearted giver he is, then you just can't be that kind of person, you see. And if you sow abundantly, he says, you'll reap abundantly. And he goes on to explain what he means. Verse 7, I think, is an explanation of sowing. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a, a cheerful giver. If you have a New American Standard, it says each man should do. And if you notice, the do is in italics, which indicates it's not in the Greek text. You could supply almost any verb there. And the best one is sow. That's the point that he's trying to make. This is what it means to sow. Each man should sow what he has decided to sow in his heart. Not reluctantly, the word he uses means uh, sorrowfully, with tears. You know, he's talking about bursting into tears when you give someone something away because it's so precious to you. No, not with tears, not under compulsion. We should never give under compulsion. We should never give because we're forced to give or give out a sense of guilt or, guilt, or, or, or ask people to give because they've pledged so much to give. No, no, he says, not out, of, not out of sorrow and not out of compulsion, because God loves that cheerful giver. Interesting word, cheerful. The, the word that's translated cheerful here is the word from which our word hilarious comes from. God loves a hilarious giver. My father used to use that phrase all the time. And as a kid, growing up with a kid's imagination, I used to always uh, think about that and got a few laughs out of it. I, I, I could picture the, the offering plate going down the aisle, and uh, the first person puts in five and giggles, and uh, the second person puts in ten and chuckles a little louder, and uh, the third person puts in $50, and they just you know, have to hold their sides to keep from splitting, and, and the next person puts in 75 and just falls off of the pew laughing. And <clears throat> That's not bad, though. It's really what Paul is talking about here. He uses a very strong word. It's actually very strong. His point is, don't be greedy, don't be grasping, don't be acquisitive. It's contrary to everything God teaches us about himself. Be a cheerful giver. Just give. 
Wherever a need exists, just give. Now, that's what he means by sowing. Sowing abundantly has nothing to do with quantity. He's not concerned with how much. We talked about that last week. God is not pacing the floor and biting his fingernails and worrying about how he's going to fulfill the Great Commission this year because he doesn't have enough money. That's not the point. He doesn't need our money. What he wants is a transformed person, a person who, who is a giver instead of a taker. Now, that's what it means to sow. Reap, the term reap is defined in verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to, uh, to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in, in every good work. In other words, as you give, Paul says, you will get more to give. You see what he's saying? He's not saying that as you give, you will get more. As a friend of mine says, he has to spend his money because if he doesn't, it backs up on him. That's not what he's talking about. Amassing a, a great deal of money for yourself. He's, he's, he's enunciating a principle through all of Scripture. If you want to get, you give. It's just backwards, see, from the way we approach life. But that's true right across the board. Uh, there was a, a time in Jesus' life when certain Greeks approached him. The story is told in John 12. And uh, this triggered something in our Lord's mind because he realized that when the Gentiles start coming to the light, then he, he was close to the cross. And so he says to, to the disciples, unless a grain of wheat falls in the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if it, if it dies, it will bring forth much fruit. Now he's talking about the ingathering of Jew and Gentile there, but he's establishing a principle that's true, stated throughout Scripture. If you want to get, you give. If you want to be fruitful, you give. If you want to live, you die. Now, we, we just turn that around. We don't believe that. Most of us are concerned about feelings of worth. We want to feel that we're worthwhile. And we are often told, if we have, have that, that problem, the way to establish confidence in yourself, the way to feel worthy is to remind yourself of who you are and what you can do or get other people to affirm you. Now, I've been through that course. It does not work, believe me. It doesn't do any good for people to tell you that you're worthwhile. Do you know how to find yourself? Do you really want to know how, how to establish your worth? Jesus says, tells us how. You have to give yourself away. He says, the worst way to try to find yourself is to try to find yourself. The best way to find yourself is to give yourself away. If you want to find yourself, lose yourself. He says, forget about yourself. Just start serving other people. Being concerned about, stop thinking about yourself and your woes and, and your problems and, how, and, and the bum deal, the bad hand that life has handed to you. And start thinking about other people. And, and our Lord says, you will find yourself. That's either true or he's a liar. And he is not a liar. So it must be true. And if you want to feel good about yourself, forget yourself. Give yourself away. It's when you give that you get. The same thing is true of knowledge. You want to know the word? Start giving it away. Start passing it on. Start teaching other people what God has taught you through his word, and you'll know more of it. That's how you get wisdom. You want friends? Well, don't walk into a room looking for someone to be your friend. Walk into the room and look for someone to be friend. Someone to give yourself away to, and you'll have more friends than you know what to do with. 
And the same thing is true of, of money, see? If you want to be able to give, Paul says, then give yourself away. Start giving, and God will give you more. Give away your home. Give away your clothes. Oh, not all of them. We live in an economy where you've got to wear clothes, and you have to have money. Jesus never told everyone, give away everything you have, but just, just start giving. Giving yourself, giving your things, giving your time, giving your gifts away, your spiritual gifts. By the way, that's how you find your spiritual gift. People get preoccupied with this whole process. How do I find what my spiritual gift is? Well, how did your hand learn how to work? Well, it didn't analyze itself anatomically and physiologically. You know, it just started, just started doing things. You want to find your spiritual gift? Just start giving yourself away. You'll find out what you can do, what God intends you to do in, in the body. See, that, that's a principle that runs all the way through Scripture. If you want to get, you've got to give. Now, let me, let me give you an illustration from the Old Testament, a great illustration of this principle. First Corinthians, First Kings 17, the story of a single parent that uh, Elijah encountered in, in Phoenicia. He, he was driven out of the northern kingdom by a drought. And he went down to Phoenicia to the city of Sidon, and he ran into this uh, young single parent and no husband, a little boy. And, and the Phoenicians were experiencing the drought as well, as well. She was starving to death. And as you know the story, she was out gathering sticks so she could take the little bit of corn that she had, a little bowl full of corn, and a little bit of oil in a flask. That's all she had left. And uh, she was going to fix that one meal, and they make a little flat pancake and roll it out, and they cook it over the coals. And she was going to fix that one meal and feed her son and herself and die. That's all she had. She knew she'd starve after that. Elijah met her and asked if he could have a cup of water and a little piece of bread to eat. And she said, I don't have anything except what I've got right here. And if I give you this, I'll starve. Elijah said, give me what you have, and God will... Meet your needs. And I'm sure she thought, oh no, I've got to take care of my child. I've got to feed him. I've got to feed myself. But you see, Elijah had promised, he was a prophet of God, and he promised that God would meet her needs if she gave away what she had. So she gave away a little bowl of corn and oil. She, she fixed a little pancake for Elijah, and she gave it to him, and he ate it, and she looked in her bowl, and it was full. So she fixed another pancake for herself and her boy. And that went on for almost three years, two and a half years. She fed Elijah and she fed herself and her, her, her boy on that little bit of corn and oil that turned up every day in that bowl. She would never have known God's resources if she hadn't been willing to give herself away. See? Now that's what Paul is saying. If we start giving, then the God who is able... Did you get that phrase? The God who is able... He will make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Five times in that one verse, he uses the word all. It covers all the bases. You'll have everything you need for every situation, for every set of circumstances. God will give you what you need to give away. See? That's his point. But you don't get it. I don't get it until we give. Now, you know the Apostle Paul. You know how he likes to nail things down. He uh, drives the nail in the board, and then he turns it over and gives it three or four whacks on the other side. 
And that's what he does by this quotation in verse 9. He corroborates this principle from an Old Testament passage from Psalm 112. He has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now we read that verse and we, because we don't know the Old Testament, perhaps, the way the Corinthians knew it. We don't understand what Paul is talking about. So let's go back to Psalm 112 and see if we can follow his argument. Psalm 112. There are three little psalms that belong together. Psalm 111, 112, and 113. And all of them are introduced by this phrase, praise the Lord, or hallelujah. That is one of those Christian words that I think has become defunct. I don't think it has any meaning anymore. We use hallelujah the way uh, we use other cliches, and it doesn't have any significance. The same is true of praise the Lord. It's an empty, hollow uh, phrase to us in, in, in our time. The, originally, the word hallelujah was much stronger than the meaning we give to it today. The, the, the closest term that I can think of to express it would be whoopee. <clears throat> really, it is. I... A few years ago, I was in a class when I was in school, and we were reading uh, some Canaanite myths. You can believe that. And these things were dramatic presentations. They, they acted out these poems in dramatic form. They tell us that these were some of the first drawings. And uh, in, the, in the course of this uh, play, these young ladies come leaping into, onto the stage. They're called Daughters of Halal. Same root that our word hallelujah comes from. Daughters of halal. That's the Canaanite word in Canaanite language. and Hebrew or sort of like French and Spanish and English. They're cognate. They're very similar. A lot of the same words. Anyway, these young ladies come bounding into the, on the stage and they're leaping and dancing and doing all sorts of athletic things. And they're called the daughters of halal. And the prof that I had at the time is the one who suggested hoopy to me because he said... We ought to call these uh, young ladies daughters of whoopee, because that's what the word means. Uh, Ray Stedman told me one time about a, uh, an elderly Chinese lady that he led to Christ when he was in Taiwan. She came from a Buddhist background. She had no understanding of Christianity, had never been around Christians, so she didn't have any Christian cliches. And when she gave her heart to Christ, her first word was, yippee! Now, that's what hallelujah means. And that's where the psalmist starts. Hoopy, he says. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who finds great delight in his commands. Now, blessed is another one of those words that, uh, that uh, we've emptied of content because we've used them so much. But this particular word means happy, the way it's used here. It means happy. That's the secret of happiness. You want to know how to be happy? And devote yourself to the Lord. Set your affection upon him. The word fear in the Old Testament is the Old Testament term for worship. Worship him. Love him. Be devoted to him. Center on him. Set your affection upon him. And you'll be happy. It's the only thing that will make you happy. Everything else is a, is a dead-end street. The more of everything else you get, the more you want. But the more of God you get, the more satisfied you are. The happier you are. And the psalmist says, once that happens, once you center yourself on God, you begin to delight in what he has to tell you. See the next phrase? 
Blessed or happy is the man who fears the Lord, who has great delight in his commands. The the psalmist in another place says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Do you realize that? Carolyn, my wife, puts it, coming to God is not like taking castor oil. She, She calls it her chocolate theology. Coming to God is like eating a Linder ball. You ever had a Linder ball? Oh, they are so good. Chocolate thing, hard chocolate shell with a soft chocolate interior. Oh, oh, it is so good. And, and that's that's the way it is coming to God. You know. Oh no, I gotta get up this morning and meet with God. Ugh. Oh no, he, he says it's a delight. What a delight it is to know God. And what a delight it is to want to please Him. It's not hard. It doesn't taste bad. It's not distasteful at all. Happy is the man who fears the Lord, who finds great delight in His commands. And then He begins to tell us what it means when you give yourself to God. What will happen? Verse 3, wealth and riches are in His house, and His righteousness endures forever. Now, the first time you read that, you think, oh, good, He'll make me rich, and He will continue to be good to me because His righteousness endures forever. But read on. Even in darkness, light dawns for the upright, for the gracious and compassionate and righteous man. He's talking about our righteousness, not his. Our righteousness, he says, will endure forever. Good will come to him who is generous and lends freely, who conducts his affairs with justice. Uh, He puts that in there because when you begin to have money, there's always a temptation to abuse the power that, that goes along with it. So you will not deal unjustly with others. You'll conduct your affairs with honor and justice. Surely he'll never be shaken. A righteous man will be remembered forever for his character, not for his accomplishments, you see. He will have no fear of bad news. His heart is steadfast trusting in the Lord. Bad news about his money. He doesn't fear someone calling him and saying that he's lost everything because he isn't trusting in riches. That's what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6. Don't trust in uncertain riches because they can be taken away just like that. But trust in God, see. So he's not afraid of bad news because his heart is... Made steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is secure. He will have no fear. In the end, he will look in triumph on his foes. He has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying he begins to scatter his goods to the poor. And he is given more so he can do more righteous deeds. The righteousness here is almsgiving, specifically in the Old Testament. He can take care of the needs of others. See what he's saying? Now, one of the interesting things about this little triplet of Psalms is that back in 111, the same thing is said of God. Verse 2, Greater the works of the Lord, they are pondered by all who delight in them. Glorious and majestic are his deeds, and his righteousness endures forever. It's not talking about what God is, but what God does. And if you read on through the rest of the psalm, you can see that. It's talking about God's character. What God does for us, his righteous deeds endure forever. The same thing is said about us once we center on God. Our righteous deeds endure forever. Now that's why Paul puts this psalm in 2 Corinthians 9. Because he understands the psalm. When you give yourself to God, he will give himself to you, and he will give you everything you need to give to other people. It all starts with, with knowing God and centering on him and fearing him. Once we fear him and love him, once we set our affection upon him, 
Then we begin to pick up his heart for people and his desire to give. And as we give, we're given more grace to give more so that we have everything that we need to meet the needs of people around us. Our righteousness will endure forever. Now let's go back to the 2 Corinthians passage again and look at verse 10. 2 Corinthians 9.10 Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. See what he's saying? You'll be made rich in every way so you can buy a condo in Sun Valley? No. You'll be made rich in every way so that... uh, You can spend February in Hawaii? No. You'll be made rich in every way so you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. He'll multiply the harvest of righteousness, he says. Like a little boy. Remember the story of the little boy? He gave his his little bag lunch to Jesus and the apostles. The story I told you last week. That little boy fed 5,000 people with that little bitty bag. That's why I say that the amount doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much we give. We seem to think unless we give a lot, it's insignificant. God doesn't care if we give what we can of our money, of our time, of our talents, of our energy. God will multiply that harvest, and the result, he says, will be thanksgiving to God. Haven't you noticed that? I I can think back on times in my life when we were uh, kind of at the end of things and not knowing where the next uh, uh, bit of money was coming from to pay the bills and and someone would send us some unexpected gift in the mail, and I'd tear that thing open, there'd be a check. You know what I said? I, I would say, praise the Lord. I use that old Christian cliche, praise the Lord, hallelujah. See, I was expressing thanks to God, although I appreciated what the person had done. I realized that behind the gift was God himself. So what Paul is saying is that not only will we be enriched to give others, but others uh, will have awakened in them a thankful heart toward God. And then finally, as he goes on to say, this service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God because of the service by which you have proved yourselves. Men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given to you. That's the third result. The first is that God will enrich you so you can give. The second result is that he will awaken a thankful heart toward God and others. And the third is that uh, people will will come to yearn for you and love you and, and pray for you. You, you. Your gift won't be unnoticed. It's not that they thank God and ignore you. you. You'll gain what Jesus called eternal friends. I love that phrase, eternal friends. You know, one of these days we're going to stand before the Lord and somebody's going to sidle up to you and, and say, uh, you don't know me. But uh, I lived in the Middle East. I was a Muslim. And I came in contact with a fellow by the name of Dan Brown. And he introduced me to the Savior. And I'm here today because you gave to send Dan and Monica overseas. That's what he's talking about. There'll be people yearning for us and longing for us and loving us here because we shared with them. And there'll be people throughout eternity that will be made friends as a result of our generosity. 
And then he concludes basically with uh, the same point with which he began in verse 15. Thanks be to God, he says, for his unspeakable gift. You go right back to the gift that inspires all gifts. Once you, once you see what God has done in the cross, once you, you see that our sins brought about the death of God, and you see how much he gave, that God so loved the world that he gave his only, only begotten son, that then, you see, it opens up the wellsprings of giving in your own heart. His indescribable gift is what causes us to get. You see, it all goes back again to centering on God. I, I, I know you're probably tired of hearing me say that, but I just want to get that across. You don't have to beg people for money. You don't have to plead with them to give. You don't have to twist their arms. You don't have to put guilt on them. You don't have to ask for some kind of pledge that will strap them for the rest of their, of their life. All you have to do is get people to love God and center on Him. And he'll give. Because just being around the Lord makes a giver out of you. You begin to see what he gave. And you want to give. It changes your heart. You, see. you know, the problem with us, the problem with me, you and me, is that we really are caught between heaven and earth. Here on earth, money is, is magic. Money does everything. We live in that economy. You can't do without money. You've got to have some money. I have a friend who lives over in council. Uh, who who has decided to live off the land and live as simply as he possibly can and and uh, he he uh, hunts and fishes and makes everything and but it still costs him about fifteen hundred dollars a year to live because he has to buy uh, kerosene and a few other things so even someone like that has to have some money to live money's just a part of her life can't get away from it we work for the stuff on the other hand we know that we're creatures of heaven and money doesn't mean anything to God, not the kind of money that we, that we deal with. That's why we always get caught in these attempts to try to justify our, our purchases. You ever feel that? Oh, it just hits me all the time. You know, you buy a new automobile, some of you, you got to explain it to somebody. Or you buy a new suit, or somehow you have to explain why you did this. We're caught in that kind of bind all the time. Uh, C.S. Lewis, I think, was the first to comment on the fact that the only people that aren't caught in that tension, well, actually, there are two types of people that are not caught in that tension. There are some uh, whose profession of faith is false. They're not Christians at all. Money is their God. So, they, you know, they don't care. They just live for money. There are others for whom money is meaningless. And there are those who have centered on God. Now, that's exactly what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 6 when he says you can't serve God in mammon. Mammon is the Aramaic uh, word for money. And most translations capitalize the M in mammon, rightly so, because Jesus is, is personifying money as a god. And it is. I was just reading a review this last week uh, of one of Jocko Lull's books in, in which the reviewer commented on the fact that our, our banks look like... Uh, Temples, you know, the Romanesque architecture, and so they used to. They don't anymore, but they used to. And he was saying, money is a is a is a god. It's a cult. You go into the bank and you worship God. I, I'm not. You know, banks are fine. You have to deal with them. But and we got bankers here in the congregation, so I'm not against banks. <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying that you know there there's some symb- symbolic uh, significance there. I think that money is a god. Jesus says, you can't serve God and man. 
doesn't say you shouldn't. He says you can't. That's what puts us in this bind. This is why we have this tension. We're trying to serve both God and mammon. We can't get it straight. You know how Jesus solves that problem? puts it very simply in Matthew 6. I was going to have you turn to it, but I don't have time this morning. You know the passage. Look it up this week on your own. Jesus says where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. What do you treasure? What do I treasure? Is it money, possessions, material things, or is it God? It's true. Whatever we treasure, yes, we're minded, but mostly in the New Testament. Heart is mind, the rational facility. It's what we think about. So we're preoccupied with. Someone has commented that our preoccupation is far more important than our occupation. It's not what we do. It's what we're fixed on, what we think about. And Jesus says, if you're always thinking about money and how to pay the bills, you don't even have to have money to be a materialist. You, 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 know, you can be a materialist and be dead broke because you're always thinking about money and worried about it and anxious about it, preoccupied with it. How to invest, how to take care of your family financially, how to get your kids through college. And obviously you have to think about these things. But Jesus is talking about preoccupation. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. What do we treasure? What do we adore? What do we what are we devoted to? What do we love? Is it God or money? It can't be both ways. That's why Jesus said, if the eye is single, then the whole body will be full of light. You see do you understand what he's saying? If you have your eye fixed on God. If you love him with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, then your body will be flooded with light. Your mind will be enlightened. You will know how to spend your money. But if the eye is dual, is the word that he uses, how great is that darkness? If we have one eye on God and one eye on on money, we're always confused. Do you want to know how much to give? Do you want to know to what extent to open up your home? Do you want to know to what extent to uh, loan out your fishing equipment or your hunting equipment or to give your time away? I can't tell you. The Bible doesn't give you five principles to, to, to use that will meet every one of those situations. Do you know what Jesus says? He says, just fix your eye on Jesus and don't worry about it. He'll let you know your whole body will be full of life. You say, that's too ambiguous. I can't live that way. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. The, the, the reason we can't is because we haven't tried it. But when we fix on God, when we set our affection upon Him, when we love Him with all of our heart and give ourselves to Him, everything falls into place. I can't tell you how. I can't tell you when you'll give or where you'll give or to whom you'll give. And certainly we need to use wisdom in thinking all these things through. All I can tell you is that you'll know how to use your money wisely. If the eye is single, then the whole body will be full of light. So it really goes back to what we've been talking about all along. We talked about this in terms of witness, and it's the same principle in terms of our giving. It begins with giving ourselves to God. You seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things will be added to you. Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you again for this encouragement. We realize that for many of us, our values are badly misplaced. We have, we have served mammon. In many ways, we have, we have sold out to mammon. 
and uh, permitted our pursuit of money to be the controlling principle in our life and have, have served another God. Forgive us. And we thank you, Father, for your forgiving heart and for the assurance that, that you will restore us and, and give us again uh, the, the right perspective on the things that you've given to us. We pray that as a result of our being with you, and walking with you, fellowshipping with you, that your giving heart would rub off, rub off on us, that we would, would share with you a desire to, to give and to give and to give, that our righteousness as yours would endure forever. Thank you, Lord, for this word of encouragement. Thank you that once again our, our eyes and our hearts have been centered upon you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.